Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as Pastor Dan mentioned, we have uh, been reading together about the life of the Apostle Peter, uh, which we have seen is really a story uh, about what the steadfast love of Jesus does to Peter over time. It's a story of what Jesus' love works in him and what it calls him to and what it makes of him for the life of the world. And that makes it a hopeful story for people like us. Because seeing Jesus with Peter gives us an idea of what the love of Jesus might make of you and I, too. So this morning we're going to read the last of those stories that we're going to read together. It is from the end of the Gospel of John, and it starts uh, appropriately enough with uh, Peter and a couple other guys going fishing. So I'm going to read from John 21 for us, verses 1 through 19. Uh, It's a little longer reading. It's printed in the order of worship, and you can follow along there if you want to. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word and it is given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would come to us like uh, the good shepherd and that you would tend to us. That through this word we've read and heard together that we're going to talk about that you would meet us in exactly the places where we are um, with exactly uh, the kind of faith we have, strong or weak or not even sure. And that you would tend to us that as we sang, you would give us some manna, some bread, that you would nourish us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the summer uh, that I turned 17, I worked for uh, a contractor. He mostly did home improvement contracting. Uh, And I think I'd say that summer was my first uh, real job. Uh, I had to show up on time. I had to work hard. I had to try to keep up. Uh, And at the end of the day, I was exhausted. I, I tore stuff apart. I threw stuff away. I hauled stuff around. I uh, scraped stuff and I painted stuff. They did not let me towards the detail work and that was just fine. Uh, And as the summer wound down and school was just around the corner, my boss asked me if I wanted to stay on and work a few nights during the week. Uh, He had taken on this really big renovation project. It was a large, uh, old, historic building that had been a freight depot and now it was being uh, used as this massive antique store. And the thing was, uh, even though there was a lot of work that needed to be done, the owners didn't want to shut the business down during the day. They wanted as much of that work to be done in the evening as possible. And that's where I came in. Uh, My boss said, I'll just give you a key. You can show up after hours, let yourself in. You can do the work, and when you leave, you can lock the door. And the money was going to be good, and it sounded fun, so I told him I'd do it. And when my boss handed me the keys on that first day, I thought, what is this guy, an idiot? I am 17 years old, (laughs) and he wants me to go into this place by myself and work in this big fun house of a place by myself, and he trusts me to lock it up when I leave at the end of the day. I mean, I think about that, and I wonder, how did he ever dream that that was a good idea. But if you have uh, ever been in a spot like that with someone giving you responsibility that you absolutely don't think you're qualified or ready or fit for, if you've ever been in that spot, then you probably know what else I thought when he gave me those keys on the first day. I thought, man, I don't want to disappoint him. He must uh, see something in me that I don't see in me. He trusts me enough to give me something pretty big to do. He trusts me enough to put his own reputation on the line to have me do it. He wants me to do this work. And I'll tell you, church, that is a pretty amazing thing for a 17-year-old knucklehead kid to think. It is the kind of thing that changes you. So Simon and Jesus are by the sea that morning. And surprisingly enough, we find that Jesus wants Simon to do some work for him. And not just uh, any work, Jesus' work. He wants Simon to be a shepherd. 
He wants Simon to do that. The guy who denied even knowing who Jesus was. The guy who ran from Jesus with curses and lies and shame and fear chasing him down into the darkness. The guy that has lived with that agonizing memory every day, every hour, every minute since it happened. Jesus wants him somehow. Jesus shows Simon grace. And church, that is the kind of love that changes you. It calls out love from places you didn't know you had love. And it gives you what you need to love others. And this is always, always how Jesus is with people like us. So Simon and Thomas and Nathaniel and the Zebedee boys and, and two other of the disciples are back in Galilee. Jesus has been resurrected and they know that he's been resurrected because they've seen him a handful of times in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't linger with them in those moments, but he did let them see him. He let old Thomas touch him because that's what Thomas needed. But before, uh, before everything went down, back in the garden, before he was even arrested, Jesus had told them that he was going to meet them back home. And so that's why they're in Galilee, because Jesus told them, that's where I'm going to see you again. So they're back in Galilee. There's no way, really, for any of us to imagine what that must have been like, what those days must have been like. They must have been nuts. You know, they're part of this small group of women and men who are the bearers of the strange and wonderful news of Jesus' resurrection. They have no idea exactly what it all means. They're living in new creation, but they can't quite put all the pieces together. They don't know even what the knowing of it means for them. And now they're home. They're back in the familiar places, back with familiar people just waiting to show up. And some of them, of course, have started to wonder if what's happened over the last few days really happened. And one of them has been living with a very painful memory. His joy, his fear, his wonder is tinged with a deep sadness and a deep regret. And that's Simon. Simon says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. Because that's what he knows. That's how he can at least be useful in that time and not just sit around and let his memories overwhelm him and pull him underneath. And that's what a bunch of those guys know. And they've got to eat. They've got to make a little dough. So they all go out like the old days and do a little night fishing. But it is a, a bust out. <laughs> now, I'm not a fisherman. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I know what the last thing a professional fisherman wants to hear after a long night of catching nothing is. I'm pretty sure they don't want to hear, hey, children, do you have any fish? <laughs> but it's Jesus. And he is setting all of them up. And especially Simon. He's setting Simon up for some good stuff. They don't know that it's him. Jesus, of course, knows that they have nothing. 
And that's what they tell him. We've got nothing. He tells them, cast the net out on the starboard side of the boat and you'll find some. And I'm sure in this moment, it's starting to feel uh, a little bit familiar to some of those guys in the boat. James, John, Simon at least, like some memory they can't quite pin down. And then all of a sudden, the net is full and it clicks for John, who leans over to Peter and says, it's the Lord. That's Jesus over there on the shore. And as soon as Simon hears it, he throws himself into the sea. Absolutely zero surprise, right, that Simon does this. I love it, and it's beautiful. And as many times as I read that, or as many times as I hear about it, I often try to think what it was that Peter was trying to do in that moment. I mean, he'd only seen Jesus briefly and only in groups since that horrible night. And I think maybe, maybe he wondered if he got to shore fast enough, maybe he'd get a couple words in with Jesus before everyone else showed up. Or maybe, maybe Jesus would see him and he just wanted Jesus to know, this is how much, Jesus, this, this is how much I love you. And this is how sorry I am. He's all Simon. But he can't swim as fast as the six other guys can row, apparently, because it looks like they all arrive at the same time. And Jesus already has a charcoal fire burning, you know, like, uh, like the charcoal fire that Peter was standing around when he started denying who Jesus was. And there's fish on it. There's bread. Jesus has a full spread already laid out, a full breakfast already laid out. But even so, he asked them, for some of the fish that they caught. Some of the fish he had gifted them <laughs> after they had worked all night for nothing. And you know what this does? This gives Simon another chance. <laughs> another chance to uh, exuberantly show Jesus just how hard he can work for him. Just how loyal he could be. He goes back out to that boat by himself and he hauls in that ridiculous catch of fish all by himself. And when he's back, Jesus says, let's eat breakfast. <laughs> and it's important how that worked out. I think it is really important. Jesus did not need their fish, but he wanted them anyway. He did not need their fish, but he wanted them anyway. And this is always how it is with Jesus. Not, not just at that breakfast on the beach, but right now, here with us too. Just like 17-year-old uh, me with my boss, for reasons that will probably remain inexplicable pretty much forever, Jesus does his work in the world through people like us. Jesus does what he does in this world through his people, through us, through the church, he gives us gifts and he gives us abilities and desires and passions and talents. He gives all that stuff to us and it makes some of us good at talking and some of us good at listening and some of us good at making things or fixing things and others of us good at running things. Some of us are planners, some of us are doers. You get the point and at least half of the point, at least half of the point is that he's the one who made us that way. He is the one who gave us these things to begin with. And we can hone those gifts and we can practice using them and we can get better at them. But they came from him 
at the start, just like the fish that morning. It is clear he does not need those fish. (laughs) It is just as clear that he really wanted them. This is how Jesus does his work in the world. He uses our gifts. And part of growing up as a Christian, part of people like us maturing in our faith, is seeing that that's true and being happy to haul our gifts up on the shore for him. Not to use them, you know, for building our own kingdoms or making our own names great, but to let Jesus use them. To be part of this bracing meal, this beautiful meal that he is making for the life of the world. Reconciling everything back to God. Jesus is always coming to people like you and me like that. He is always saying, bring me some of that fish you caught. He's saying it right now. So let's bring them. (laughs) So they finish breakfast. And now finally Jesus pulls Simon aside for a walk up the beach. This is the first time that it's been just the two of them since that horrible night. This is the first time they have been together since Simon had proudly and defiantly declared his dying allegiance to Jesus and then run like a coward, denying he even knew who he was three times. This is all hanging between Jesus and Simon as they're walking up that beach. No amount of exuberant swimming, no over-the-top fish hauling could ever erase the memory of what happened that night. That is painfully clear. And it might have been easier. I mean, it might have been easier if Jesus would have just said to Simon on the beach, Simon, listen, I know that it was difficult for you that night, and I know that you were scared. It's okay. It would, have, it would have been easier. It would have been easier if he had said, Simon, listen, you know, don't think another thing of it. All of that is behind us now. I don't even remember what happened. That would have been easier, but it would not have brought healing. So instead, Jesus takes Simon back to that place, and he gently opens up that wound so that there can be healing, so that there could be something real between them. Jesus moves straight and unflinching to the place of deepest pain. This is always what Jesus does. He looks at Simon, Simon who had once wanted nothing to do with Jesus because Jesus made him afraid. (laughs) Simon who had been graciously lifted from the sea. Simon the rock who holds the keys. Simon the accuser who hinders Simon, who thought that he could catch heaven in a tent. Simon, who did catch a fish with a shekel in its mouth. Simon, who could not stay awake. Simon, who promised, if everyone else leaves you, I won't. And then he left him. That Simon, that Simon, is the Simon that Jesus looks at. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Oh, man, you know, any question but that one. 
I mean, isn't that exactly what Simon had implied that night? Isn't that exactly what he was trying to say? Even though they all fall away, Jesus, even though every one of them does, I will never do that. Nobody loves you more than I do, Jesus. It's hard to imagine a more painful and more necessary question than the one Jesus asked. And Simon, for his part, does not make any more overwrought displays of devotion. He makes no wild promises he will be unable to keep. He's done trusting in it. He's done trusting in his own instincts, and so he appeals to the only thing in the entire created order that makes sense. He appeals to who Jesus is. He says, you know, Lord, (laughs) you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. But it isn't over. Jesus asks again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon answers again, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. And then a third time he asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon, you know, he can't take it anymore. That knife, you know, that knife that had been forged in love and by love and for love, it has cut him so deep at this point. And he's grieved to be asked again. And he, and he rests one more time, not on himself, but on Jesus. Yes, Lord, you know everything, and so you know, you know I love you. And Jesus says for the third and final time, feed my sheep. Three times, once for each of the times that Simon had denied him. There is no coincidence in that, of course, just like there's no coincidence in that huge catch of fish, and just like there's no coincidence with that charcoal fire that Jesus made on the beach. No coincidence at all. Jesus evokes those moments. He evokes those moments, and Simon has to remember, Jesus has meant nothing but good for me my whole life. And Jesus' forgiveness and restoration take the shape of giving Simon a job to do. Jesus, the good shepherd, asked Simon to share in his work in the world. Tend my lambs, Jesus says. You know what he's doing? He is handing over the keys to Peter, the rock. To Peter. Jesus doesn't have to do this. Jesus doesn't need to do this. But in steadfast love, Jesus wants to do this. It's the kind of thing that changes you. It's the kind of thing that makes you right years and years later when you reflect back on your life and you reflect back on all of this grace that you have been shown. It's the kind of thing that changes you and makes you say this, love covers a multitude of sins. Indeed it does, Peter, and nobody knows that like you do. Now put your wobbly love for Jesus to work and go turn the world upside down. And this is exactly how it works for people like us too. Jesus always uses people exactly as qualified, exactly, precisely as qualified as we are to do his work in the world. Which is to say Jesus uses people who have been forgiven. Church, there's no sin too grievous or bitter for his grace. There is no shame that is too deep or too painful for his healing. 
There is no stain so dark that it cannot be washed away. And that's for sure. That's the truth. It is the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And if we have been forgiven, we have also been given a job to do. And we are perfectly, perfectly qualified for it. He sees something in us that we might not even see in ourselves. He's given us the gifts and he has handed over the keys because he trusts us and he invites us to share in his work for the life of the world. It's the truth. And seeing that changes people. It calls out love in us. And that is precisely what we need to live the life that he has called and and made us to live for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, every time you meet us in the places of our deepest pain and, and shame and regret, You move unflinching with the grace of Jesus to those places and you you know how we cower away from it and try to hide from it and try to deflect and do a bunch of good stuff and make a bunch of crazy promises. So Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people. You, You help us please, Father, to be a people who allow that healing work of your grace to happen even in the darkest places. Father, and in that forgiveness, remind us that you have given us a job that we are qualified for and that you trust us to do, that you have given us gifts to be used for the life of this broken and hurting world. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.